TED Audio Collective. Tired of unnecessary payroll errors? Stop them in their tracks. With Paycom, employees do their own payroll. They're able to identify errors and fix them before submission, right in the app. Because no one can afford for payroll to be wrong. Not HR and payroll teams, not leaders, and definitely not employees. Shorted paychecks, timesheet corrections, unentered sick days, missing overtime hours, and expense mistakes are, well, unnecessary for everyone. Manage the process to make payday right with Paycom. Learn more at paycom.com slash soundrise. That's paycom.com slash soundrise. Hi, I'm Debbie Millman. Canva is great for designing visual content for work, no matter what industry or department you work in. Now your next presentation with Canva Presentations. Start with a professionally designed template and use it as a springboard for your design. It's a serious time saver. Time to present but can't be there in person? Enter Canva Talking Presentations. Record yourself presenting and add your talking head to your slides so your audience can watch your perfected presentation anywhere, anytime. Start designing today at canva.com. Designed for work. And it's not about measuring success by did you get a job or did you pass or any of those quantitative things. It's have you graduated as a free, aware thinker with the skills to work across different disciplines. This is Design Matters with Debbie Millman from designobserver.com. Design Matters is on summer break and we'll be back in the fall with a new season. In the meantime, we're sharing some of the interviews Debbie has recently done in front of a live audience. This one is with Neville Brody, the great English designer, typographer, and art director. In the 1980s, Brody worked for Fetish Records and for The Face, which revolutionized art direction for magazines. The interview took place in January 2018 in Atlanta during an AIGA conference. Here's Debbie Millman, live with Neville Brody. After you were at Fetish, you then went to The Face, and that work has been credited with revolutionizing the way in which designers and readers approach graphics. Um, did you start there thinking, okay, I am now going to change everything? Um, okay, so I, I was working on Fetish and the Face at the same time. Okay. Um, and a number of other things. I'd set up my own studio. Right. So very, af- very after early. Rocking Russian, you never worked for anybody again? Well, Stiff Records for a year. Okay. And I got fired for being late. Being late? Um, yeah. Just coming no, in no, late. No. Actually, no, I was told officially, we're not firing you for being late every single day. <laughs> um, we're firing you for not apologizing for it. <gasps> wow, that's a control <laughs> issue. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So they wanted you to be remorseful. Yes, you can be late, but just grovel. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. What a view of the world that yeah, is. Yeah, but that was quite revealing for me. You know, if that was how a corporate industry worked, then that wasn't for me. Clearly. Yeah. So then when I left there, I set up my own studio. I'd met Nick Logan, who was um, publisher of the Face magazine. I met him when he was doing smash hits. 
Um, and he'd said there's no way he was employing me for that. Why? Because it was a highly commercialized thing and it was formula driven. You wouldn't have wanted to do that, would you? For the cash, yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, and then when he launched The Face, he contacted me and brought me in and gave me a couple of spreads to do experimentally, realized that I could potentially bring something that he couldn't do. And then um, we collaborated then for, for years. Um, and what it gave me was the opportunity with fetish and with the face is to experiment on a big canvas. And the beauty of a, mag beauty of a magazine design is that you can attempt something um, and then next month you can attempt something different. And there's a, there's a kind of a narrative of evolution and experimentation where you're linking some parts of what you did to the next stage of experimentation. So it allowed me to, to build, a, not a story, because we're not talking about storytelling, um, but it was like a live lab of experimentation. And how rare and how brilliant an opportunity is that? And the fact that The Face was an independent publication, Fetish Records was an independent publisher out of a, a small one-bedroom apartment in Victoria, um, and these platforms are critical. The problem now is there are less platforms, I think. Do you think that it's created an opportunity for the remaining platforms to either become better and more necessary, or do you think they've become so diluted and commercialized that there's no point anymore? Well, I think I'm going to come back to the fact that I think most social media and most publishing has become... Um, a utility. It's like a electricity or the phone or water or... And people are using it like a utility. It has the same function. In itself, there is no cultural base or basis. And it's not about culture. Um, and so... What working on the face and fetish allowed me to think about was how do you create systems out of a way of thinking? And the fact that we were doing something new every issue in itself became a system and a way of responding until it reached such a point after five or six years that people were expecting us to do something new every issue. And then it became a pattern, so I left. And I looked at our previous interview from 2007, and in that interview you stated that you felt that that work was a failure. Well, it was a failure because people didn't look to what was producing that thinking and that work, they were quite satisfied just looking at the superficial results of that. You actually said that you thought it was one of your biggest failures. Do you still feel that way? It's interesting. If you listen to John Lydon's later interviews, he says punk was the biggest mistake um, that ever happened. Why? Because what happened, well, certainly with the Face magazine, is that advertising agencies quite quickly, they were first of all challenged by what was happening because they didn't get it, it didn't fit in. And then they understood that this was the way of learning a language which would give them access to a whole new market. So they took that language and very quickly replaced it in the marketplace. Um, and took out all of the, the, the danger and the threat and the risk and the challenge and the unpredictability and made it a predictable language in order to sell product. 
So then suddenly you're in an environment where everything looks like that. And so it's, it's commodified. And it's a style. It's, it's beyond commodified. It's hijacked. And it mm. happens a lot. It happened with rap and hip-hop. It happened with punk. It happens all the time. So do you think that that's a, a, disrespect, a disrespecting type of approach to appropriation? Or do you think that it's just commercialized and... Well, media has to appropriate. I think it's in its nature. Um, so in a way, it's a form of respect. But again, I'll come back to the word vigilant. You always need to keep stepping one step ahead. And, you know, obviously running an agency is an interesting space because we have commercial work, which I enjoy, and we're creating systems for people. Um, at the same time, as an individual, I'm also looking for opportunities to move, keep moving thinking ahead. Um, and not settling on that, looking for status. And right, Facebook updates. Yeah. You have always been doing numerous things at the same time. Mm -hmm. So while you were at The Face, you were also working mm -hmm. at Fetish, as you said. Um, you, are, you have your own really vibrant practice doing lots of different projects, which I want to start talking about. But you're also the Dean of Communication at the Royal College of Art. And you've been doing that for quite some time. What made you decide to go into education as well as continuing all of your own practice? Well, I, could, I, I was going to be flippant and say because I could. Um, and the opportunity came up. Um, ever since I was at art school, I thought that the, the system doesn't support individual creative thinkers. Um, and if you take a risk and do something outside the system, uh, it doesn't like it. So. One thing I wanted to do was use my work as a way of evidencing to students that yes, you can have self-belief. You can push ideas, you can take risks, you can fail. Um, but as long as you are, as I said, obsessed and possessed, you can push through it and it will work for you. So I wanted to evidence that. Um, Where does your self-belief come from? Is it just good parenting? Is it an awareness of your talent? Where does, where does that self-belief originate in you? I think creative people feel that they have a certain capability um, and that gives them a certain degree of confidence. But the reality is I feel that if I wasn't fulfilling that part of um, what I can do, I wasn't really fulfilling uh, in a way why I'm here. Um, you know, it would be quite easy to just become a commercial designer and settle down and... Um, really? No, I mean, it feels absolutely not. Okay, <laughs> it feels like that would be the hardest thing in the it world. It would to be do. impossible, and um, uh, you know, as as we know, <laughs> um, working with Phil here, who will be forever dying because I've just mentioned his name on right live on row. live streaming. <laughs> um, I'll buy you a drink later. Do you do you enjoy teaching? What what do you how do you feel when you're in okay, the process? Okay, so flipping of back to that, so I'd always wanted to then re-question design education and creative education. And what's happening certainly in, in the West is this move towards STEM. Um, Science, technology, engineering, engineering and, maths. and math. Yeah. And then the idea of adding the A, which is art, in that is just, just bollocks. Why? Because it's just making art seem as if it's one of those other sciences. And in fact, the creative thinking could question all of that other stuff. So it's, it's creating a new formula in, in which art is a kind of a token member. 
And I don't think that's what it's about. I think it's about reinventing and rethinking our whole edu education system to create skilled, dangerous minds. We need those minds to be able to go out into society, to understand what's going on, to be, again, vigilant, to create strategies for helping make society a better place and having the courage and the guts to go in and do it. Um, so not people that are looking for kind of comfort and embeddedness, but people that will go out and, and, and question. So it's really courage. But look at alternatives. Yeah. How have you managed with the inherent bureaucracy in almost all educational institutions? It seems like mm -hmm. that would be something that would really infuriate you. Well, I'm proud to say um, really badly. <laughs> um, um, you know, I'm not, I'm not a corporate person. And, um, really? It might surprise you. <laughs> I have my suit under here. <laughs> um, no, I'm not corporate and I don't sign up to it. But at the same time, obviously, we're working with corporations. So we have to find a common ground, um, which we inevitably do. But um, working in the college has been a really interesting experience because I've never had that level of um, tenure before. Um, I worked less than a year at Stiff Records, um, and then I haven't had a job until working at Royal College. And it, it's been an education. Um, I love teaching. Most of my work is, is dealing with bureaucracy now. Yeah, that must be really unfulfilling. Well, it's learning. I'm learning a hell of a lot. And so you're still doing quite a lot of corporate work. Let's talk a little bit about the work that you've been doing with James Somerville mm -hmm. at Coca-Cola. Um, the new typeface, TCCC Unity, which sounds, I was... It sounds Russian. It, sounds it does. Russian. It sounds very Russian constructivist. Yeah. But the TCCC, I realized, is the Coca-Cola company. Yeah. Um, and the Unity was also a typeface that Nike had. So the TCCC was added. Well, maybe it was Adidas. Oh, Adidas? Yeah, I think so. Um, oh, you said Adidas. Project, you know, project, status, yeah, but, status. No, but the guy who runs Adidas... Um, is Adidasler, which is why it's Adidas. But anyway, that's Adidas. Adidas. Okay. 130-year-old um, company. You can beat me up afterwards. 130-year-old <laughs> company. How do you even begin to create a typeface for a company that is mm. that? And, and I don't mean, I'm going to use a word, the word entrenched. I don't mean that in a negative way, but just so deeply embedded in a visual language that mm -hmm. is recognizable around mm -hmm. the world. Mm -hmm. Well, very early on, working with James Somerville and the team, which are great. And the beauty at Coca-Cola is that the global design team is really small. Um, you could fit them in a room. Um, I mean, I don't mean a room. Um, <laughs> the entire audience the entire is the audience. design team at yeah. Coca-Cola. Um, but the fact is that you can sit down for lunch and have a conversation. So. Getting things discussed and sorted and responded to was a really fast process. And I engaged very directly with James as part of this. And I think we took a very kind of, I guess, a rational approach to this, that Coca-Cola needed a typeface that was ownable, that they could control their outcome in, in um, 400 different territories more directly and uh, in, in a better way. Um, and something that could be um, recognizable as part of delivering the, the Coca-Cola personality. And the other thing is that it had to be scalable. 
so to go from text to headline, and it had to work across every single platform from digital to um, tiny on a mobile screen to large in a, in a store display. And so the beginning of this was looking for something which would function as a machine across all of those things, as a proper tool. And then we knew very quickly that it had to be part of the voice of Coca-Cola. How do you avoid cliche when working with a brand that has such recognizability? How do you avoid doing something that is um, expected? Well, the great thing that James and his team have been doing is taking the Coca-Cola brand and reinventing it. Um, they've introduced, or James has introduced, kind of an approach to design thinking, where design is much more embedded in the way the brand is thought about. And also looking for kind of wit, a more graphic approach to things. Um, and James is consciously trying to avoid the cliched approach to this. It's, 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 there's always something engaging with the work that's being produced. And I think for me, Coca-Cola in itself is not a cliche. Um, but what it needs is those recognizable DNA elements. Which are what? Which is a color. And for the, for the product, it's the script. Um, it's the bottle shape, again, for the product. And then it's the kind of language that's being used. And then finally, it's how do you tell the story? So the typeface itself became a critical part of that, which had been missing. And the fact that they were using a typeface that had been used by so many other brands now. What were they using? Well, my good friend Tobias is um, Gotham. Okay. And Gotham is a great font. Yeah, but it was also really, really good for Obama, and therefore it's not quite as proprietary. Yes, it's in half the world's brands are using it, which is a, a great recognition of the quality. But it meant that Coca-Cola were not unique in a very ubiquitous arena. So most brands have to straddle the continuum between recognizable and surprising. You get too far over to surprising and people kind of freak out that the brand is changing and no mm. longer has the sort of inherent integrity that it once had. And if it's too recognizable, then it's cliche. But it's, 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 it's three-dimensional. You, you, know, you need to operate and navigate within those two spaces. But then your market also might be capable of different things. And there may be parts of the market that want to see something familiar and parts of the market that really want to be taken to somewhere new. Mm -hmm. So there's a three-dimensional aspect to that. So the language has to be broad enough to be able to say very different things in very different spaces, but authentically. So you can, you can push the idea out, but having a typeface there allows it to link to the same piece of DNA, so it's attributable. How much work, if any, did James and team reject? Um, I'd like to say none. <laughs> is that true, James? Where is James? James is hiding. Is, <laughs> is he? He's, he actually is. He's all the way in the back. Um, so, so how much... Is that, is that for the quick exit? <laughs> how, how did you start the project? How do you start working on a, on a typography? How do you, do you sketch? Do you dream? Do you agonize? Um, it was actually very, a very logical stepped process. We spent 
three days embedded in the archive here um, at Coca-Cola headquarters, um, locked in the room with this amazing trove. I mean, I could, if they didn't throw us out, we'd still be there. Yeah, I, I had an afternoon there and it was it's, amazing. It's amazing. And um, one day, I hope that they make some of that more public. Um, you know, Coca-Cola World is one thing, but this stuff is just stunning. Yeah, it's almost like a, a visual history of our culture. Well, certainly of Americana yeah. for the last 130 yeah. years. Um, and you look, you find things in there which say a lot about uh, the, the American philosophy and how that's changed over the last 130 years, um, moving from this kind of um, frontiers thinking, um, speed, uh, lots of stuff had kind of a bit sticking out, which gave it the sense of direction and movement. And um, the typefaces generally tended to be wide rather than narrow. Um, they tended to be geometric, which again is about construction and modern industry and um, building cities. So all of these clues were in there. And we pulled out thousands of examples because we felt that what was really important was, was two things about the typeface. One, that the structure itself felt Coca-Cola. And then two, that there are enough human quirks and elements built into it that came from Coca-Cola's history that actually said it's part of the rich personality of Coca-Cola. And that process was reasonably, as I said, logical of breaking things down, building intuition in as well. Um, and we ended up with four or five spaces that we then ran workshops directly with the Coca-Cola design team. And together we kind of evolved where the direction would be heading. And now it's launched. Yeah, so there's no changing it. <laughs> and, and how do you feel about the work? Do you feel like there would still be something you'd want to change? How do you know when something is really ready to be launched? Yeah, no, we're really happy with it. And we're rolling out a number of different weights and styles now as the, the font is evolving. Um, I think the beginning, the problem was to, to kind of uh, get the hooks in and then get movement around that within the company, that this was the right way forward. So a lot of the workshopping and presentation process was about getting consensus on board. And how was that? I mean, this is a global company, a multi-billion dollar company. Paula Scherer has said that the reason that designers get paid the big bucks isn't really for the work, it's to navigate the politics of these global bureaucracies. How was that for you? What big bucks? <laughs> yeah, they I, still I have, have to pay you for the two, previous, <laughs> the two previous <laughs> fonts that they yeah. used. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, no, well, to be honest, I think James has been uh, brilliant in that because he's, he's been so skilled at navigating internally mm -hmm. and knowing who the uh, people that need to come on board are, how to bring them on board, how to um, evangelize this process. And, um, so there wasn't a lot of internal resistance? Um, you'll have to speak to James directly about that. Oh, okay, good. I will, actually. I really want to know about this. He certainly kept us out of that picture. You have so many other projects that I can talk to you about, and I want to give the, the audience an opportunity to ask you questions. Mm -hmm. So I'm just going to um, run through a, a list of, of names, and maybe you can pick one that you'd like to talk about. So you did the, um, you were commissioned by Nike to create two typefaces to be applied to England squads, World Cup shirts. Um, you did a 
phenomenal project with Supreme, um, where you created both a font and graphic materials um, for the brand. You worked with Christian Dior on creating a gorgeous new um, piece of identity. Um, so what would you like, what project would you like to talk about? The Anti-Design Festival. Okay, talk about the Anti-Design Festival. Um, so we were asked in 2010, actually, to um, Phil's going to have a go at me afterwards for this. <laughs> no? Okay. Um, no, because the Anti-Design Festival for us was part of uh, keeping that level of consciousness and awareness and moving things on. And for us, design and culture had become so synonymous with um, me measurability. You can measure an outcome. You know, how many tickets did you sell? Right. What was the price you got? Um, how many people... Um, boarded the plane, um, how many likes did it get? So it's a numeric, it's quantitative. And we felt very strongly in 2010 that so much culture was not being produced because it didn't give a quantitative outcome. And so we were asked by the London Design Festival if we would do something to do with them. And I said flippantly, I'd rather do an anti-design festival, <laughs> which is how it started. And so what does anti-design mean to you? It means anti how design is commonly held in society as being something that will just deliver income. And so we wanted to create something where people didn't buy tickets, where people could bring their own work and hang it on a wall or take other work away, where workshops were free, where debates and performances were open and no subjects was off the table. And the people were encouraged to embrace the idea that failure in itself was not an obstacle to thinking and evolution and progression. So we deliberately positioned it as saying that it's not about a numeric outcome, it's a qualitative process. And I think um, that kind of underpinned a lot of my work at the Royal College of Art. And it's not about measuring success by did you get a job? or did you pass, or any of those quantitative things. It's have you graduated as a free, aware thinker with the skills to work across different disciplines. So really knowing on your own what you're capable of. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, it's so interesting. Um, a lot of my students at the School of Visual Arts ask for feedback, and they're graduate students, and I, I get concerned that in, going back to our conversation before about validation, mm -hmm. that at this stage of your education, you should know how you're doing. Mm -hmm. And if you need somebody to tell you, then maybe you need to look at why. Mm -hmm. But I can say the same thing to myself, so it's not being critical of, of anybody that needs that. So how did you, how did the, the what was the response like with that type of openness? I mean, well, we ended up in six months, we ended up with 10 venues. Um, we had 20,000 people in a week. Wow. Um, and um, uh, it was uh, a place for a lot of debate and thinking. And, and, and it was so exciting. I mean, I think we should be doing it again. Will you be? Well, I mean, we said we were going to do five in the beginning and then like an old rock band, uh, disband and don't do another album. Would you consider bringing something like that to the United States? Um, yeah, but where? Here. <laughs> <laughs> Laura? <laughs> Thank you for the gift. Okay. Um, right, so and by the way, your book is on sale in the mobile bookshop. <laughs> so. Thanks for the plug. Yeah, um, my pleasure. So I have one more question. It's kind of a big one. 
You famously declared that digital design is like painting, mm -hmm. except the paint never dries. Mm -hmm. um, but you recently stated that you're a bit disappointed that digital is starting to become treated a lot like utility now. Um, for instance, 20 years ago, when people first started thinking about the potential of the internet, you would have expected much more innovation and experimentation by now. So why don't you think we're seeing more innovation in this realm? Um, I think UX has a, has a lot to answer for. In what way? Because I think UX design is all about controlling the consumer path. And increasingly, in order to give a measurable response to the client or the product or the service. Um, and it's decreasingly about empowering the consumer. And so, we're working in an increasingly controlled environment. And it's the same in London if you go to any public space. The only graffiti that happens tends to be on developers' buildings and it's commissioned. Um, so now we no... get to the Banksy part of the conversation. Yeah, well. Okay, okay. we don't have to. Yeah. <laughs> Do we have time? Yeah. No. Um, <laughs> Well, I still think Banksy is quite interesting as um, a conduit for certain kinds of thought. It's a little cliched. I was going to say there's a but in there somewhere. It's a little, I mean, I do like the power of what he does, but most people I know, like in, in my family, etc., will relate to Banksy as a great gift card. <laughs> yeah. So, so there it's become commodified as well. So, but it's not Banksy so much that's created that, but he's become a very easy, it's, it's like a heavy rock band, you know. Um, and it's kind of wild and exciting, but it's quite familiar right. in a way. And it's not shocking anymore. So why do you think that we're not seeing more innovation? I mean, you said it was, you, you feel like it's UX related. Mm -hmm. How can we get past that? If anybody were thinking about, well, I want more innovation in this realm, well, what could they do? Well, because the internet, the internet and the digital space has become commoditized. So totally. And there's very few, coming back to the public space thing, public space is now owned by tech giants. And it's a very controlled space. You can't show nipples. You can't say certain things. You can lie, um, but you can't tell good truths. And it's kind of closed down. So what do we do? Um, and we need to find other outlets. And that's a constant, as again, again, coming back to the word vigilance, it's a constant thing that we need to be conscious of, finding spaces in which we can express our state to reveal difficult truths um, and um, embrace each other. Wonderful. Neville Brody, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for the extraordinary work you've brought to our world. Thank you. For more information about Design Matters or to subscribe to our newsletter, go to debbiemillman.com. If you love this podcast, please consider contributing to our new Drip Kickstarter community. Members get early access to the podcast, transcripts of every interview, invitations to live interviews, Q&A sessions with guests, and a brand new annual magazine. You can learn more about this at d.rip slash debbie-millman. That's d.rip slash debbie-millman. 
If you want others to know about this podcast, please write a review in the iTunes store and link to the podcast on social media. Design Matters is produced by Curtis Fox Productions. The show is published exclusively by designobserver.com and recorded live at the School of Visual Arts Masters in Branding program in New York City. The editor-in-chief of Design Matters Media is Zachary Pettit, and the art director is Emily Weiland. <laughs>